Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, just a heads up, the audio may be a little off because I didn't bring my my super fancy mic to Europe with me. So it's been quite a trip. I'm here in London for one and a half more days, more or less. The reason we're here is a very exciting uh, wedding in the family that um, on the Gavora side. Uh, that's later today. It's been quite an adventure. If you were a subscriber to the Dispatch, you would have may have seen in the Wednesday G-File, which I did write. I don't know if I'm going to get to the Friday one today. That I was sort of uh, a bit of a uh, tease about what what happened and all that kind of stuff. So again, I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds on all the the what I did for summer vacation stuff. Um, in part because I'm going to sort of be on vacation again for next week, but um, it's going to be more of a working vacation. Anyway, um, in part because it's just you know my life, not yours. But so I, I told you guys before how my. Uh, my wife's working on this book. I had her on the podcast. We talked for a while about it. Um, she wrote a book about her dad, who's this really amazing guy, his sort of life story, and then, you know, also what it was like growing up in Alaska and yada, yada, yada. She found this apparently, there's not apparently, there is this trail that they call the Peace Trail, which was used originally. I mean, look, for all I know, it was originally used by Cro Magnon because um, it's been there for a while. But it it gets its name from the fact that it was used by Jews escaping um, Germany and Austria. Um, we can talk about Austria, I guess, in a little bit. Um, during World War II, during the Holocaust. And it was also used by refugees from communism in um, as the Iron Curtain was going up. And that was uh, my father-in-law, uh, Paul, or Vladimir. I like to call him Vladimir, but... Everyone but his wife called him Paul. He hiked his way across uh, the Alps to, to escape communists after having swum the Danube and all this other adventure stuff. So my wife found found the route. I mean, she's 98% sure this is the route. I mean, she looked at where he was and how he got there and when he got there and where, where he first appeared in Italy. And she thinks this must be it. And, um, and apparently people do this hike. Usually they start in a place called Krimmel, Austria, very pretty part of the world. Um, we'll talk about how pretty almost all of Austria is in a second. Um, and they do this hike uh, to commemorate, you know, uh, the escape of Jews uh, from the Holocaust. So we were like, let's do it. 
Turns out I couldn't do it because someone needed to drive the van. We have eight family members with us um, in all. Uh, me, my wife, my daughter, and then uh, Jess's little brother and his wife and their three kids. And also, I'm just not in great shape for hiking, um, you know, for serious long-term hiking. The, the, the West Coast Gavoras, they live in Washington State, are in great shape for hiking. They do a lot of hiking. Um, very outdoorsy people. Uh, my daughter's in great shape for this stuff, and my wife's in good shape for this stuff. And so it, it also felt weird to invite people to come do this with us and then make someone else, make my brother-in-law drive the van instead of me. So it fell to me to drive this enormous, enormous Mercedes Sprinter van, sits, seats 10 with, with another five feet of luggage space, um, across the Alps, into Italy, and wait on the other side to pick everybody up. So we stayed in this really cool Alpine lodge way up this private road and, you know, lots of cows. And it was just really a beautiful place, even though it was pretty rainy. We could never, I mean, there were all sorts of weird adventure th things. Like we knew the trail ended in this place called Cesar, Italy, but we just couldn't find like the actual location anywhere. And it just sort of fell to me to like, when you get there, look around and find a place where a trail lets out. And which made me a bit nervous, but you know, uh, you know, my wife was right. It's like, it, it's, it's, it's weirdly opaque about how to find where this thing ends on um, any official, official like website or anything. So anyway, we wake up, have breakfast, and then my wife and daughter and the, I'll just call them the Gavoras, um, get ready to go on this hike over the Alps. And it was so rainy that we thought about canceling and my wife felt very guilty about making other people do this thing. And, but the Gavoras are, are hardy people who live in Washington state where it rains a lot. And they're like, oh no, we are going to do this no matter what, it'll be fine. And they were of good cheer because we had this, a little bit of time we had decided we would get the kids better rain gear, like rain jackets and that kind of stuff. Uh, my wife thought that she had a good poncho for this kind of thing. So did my brother-in-law. And I went off down the mountain on this, you know, shuttle thing to get back to my van to start the drive um, across the Alps. So I'm driving across the Alps. The roads are intimidating, um, particularly when you're driving, a, I don't know, a 24-foot van. Lots and lots and lots of places in Austria where... You really can't comfortably have two cars passing each other. Some places where literally two cars can't pass each other and you have to pull over and let cars pass you and that kind of thing. But it was, once I sort of figured out the turn radius stuff and all that kind of thing, it was manageable, intimidating, but manageable. And then I discover that the border to Italy is only open for 15 minutes at a time every hour. And the reason for that is there's literally no room for two cars to pass each other going over those passes. It is just tight, tight, tight. And if you go over the side, you die. It also turned out that like the weather got worse. You know, uh, Central European weather got really, really weird in the last week. And I got caught in a bunch of different hailstorms. I'll, <laughs> Adam, I will send you the, some of the audio of those hailstorms. There were a couple passes where it was safe enough for me to take out my phone and, you know, straightaways where I could slow down and just like 
record the video of it and it was bananas. And on the, on the road down from crossing the border, there was so much hail. Um, I don't think there was ever snow, but there was so much hail that the weight of the cars crushed it into a fine sheen of ice. So I'm like white knuckling it down this thing. And I somehow, for some reason, because I'm just a cheery and optimistic guy, I convinced myself that um, there's no way my family is getting this weather, right? They're higher up, they're internal. I don't know. It was all sort of stuff. And I mean, every now and then I'll be like, I hope they're not getting this, but I just didn't think they would be. Of course they were. And um, so they do this. It's a very grueling hike, at least in the beginning. And then you're on this plateau and it's it's easier. But um, turns out that the fair Jessica's rain gear was not suitable and she got soaked, you know, and it dropped to, I think dropped to the low forties, maybe even the high thirties briefly. Um, but with hail and soaking rain, they all get soaked. They're all cold. They all tell these stories about how they couldn't feel their hands and all this kind of stuff. But, uh, my wife gets so cold. She cannot for the life of her, get her body temperature back up. And every time she stops, to catch her breath, she just gets really, really cold. And my brother-in-law, Matt, he apparently had a rough time too, but um, uh, but Jess basically uh, gets uh, hypothermia. And they there are these huts up on the, on the trail that you can go into to try and get warm or start a fire, and they try to do that. They really couldn't get the kindling going, so they're all sort of trying to get warm around a single candle. Um, they're trying to get Jess warm. They can't get her clothes dry. You know, like, you know, my daughter is kind of lying down with her. She's shaking. It gets kind of scary and it's scary for some of the kids to see it. And so there will be debates by historians and the family for a thousand years about this. They make the decision to call, Matt has this, um, emergency beacon thing for this sort of quasi satellite phone thing. And... They, they pull the trigger, and I think it was the right decision, given the moment, to uh, do an SOS thing. And uh, lots of debate about whether they all should stay behind, whatever. But um, my sister-in-law, Sharon, and the kids, they press on and go. Matt stays behind, and the helicopter comes from Austrian side and picks up Matt and my wife and takes... Jessica to a hospital. Of course, like half a kilometer later, the rain stops, the kids are out in the open sun, they all dry off really quickly, and they're fine. The whole thing flattens out. And so the second half or the last third, I can't remember what the timing was, because again, I wasn't there. Um, we have talked about it a lot. Um, uh, gives out, and it becomes just a really just sort of a beautiful you know, not a stroll, but because they still had to hike for like three hours or more, something like that, to get to Italy. But much more manageable, much more pleasant, much prettier because the clouds are gone, the sun's out, and they're feeling okay. And meanwhile, Jess, by the time she gets to the hospital, feels, first of all, she's embarrassed. Lots of, you know, Alaskans aren't supposed to get hypothermia jokes and all that kind of stuff aside. Um, she, uh, she's embarrassed for the family. She's embarrassed for herself. So, like I told her, you know, 
you should just get this out there and it'll be fine. And, you know, you shouldn't, there's nothing to be embarrassed about, but, um, and she is in, you know, perfectly good shape. It just was bad set of circumstances and, and, and a bad piece of kit as the Brits over here would say that she thought was more waterproof than it was. Um, so did Matt. I mean, Matt had real, real issues because he just got soaked through and apparently they're just, there are much sharper distinctions between water resistant, waterproof and watertight than you might think. And um, so anyway, she, they flew on a helicopter, which apparently, which I believe, because I did once did a helicopter through the Swiss Alps, they helicoptered back into Austria to Zoom Alsi, Zoom MC, Zoom and Zay, I can't remember what it's called, um, a really lovely town. Um, and she went to the hospital, spent the night in the hospital, or most of the night in the hospital, and she's fine. But it was quite an adventure. Oh, and the other thing, which kind of, I was thinking about actually having my daughter on here to talk about it. It gives me, it gives me agita. So the, I mean, I can't really exaggerate how much thunder and lightning we've seen on this trip. Later on when we were in, in Lake Como in Italy, one night it was literally like a lightning bolt every 10 seconds, every five seconds. I mean, a, certainly a flash like every three seconds and then an actual lightning bolt and a loud crack of thunder faster than that. Anyway, when they were on the top of the mountain at one point, trying to find some kind of shelter when this lightning storm started, these goofy kids, they're laughing. They think it's awesome and hilarious and exciting. And at one point, Lucy turns to one of her cousins and they can see that both of them, their hair was starting to stand on end because there was so much static electricity in the air which means that like the lightning could have hit anywhere around them. And or at least that's my understanding of it. And they thought it was funny and hilarious and so cool. And look at the size of this hail and isn't this wild. And, um, and I'm very glad they're all okay, obviously, but I'm also very glad I wasn't there because I would not have found it as cool um, and as nifty as they did. Um, so anyway, I make it over the Alps through these ice storms, through this, I mean, through these hailstorms, through this rain, um, and make it to this town of uh, Cesar. And I first, you know, with, with one of these giant sprinter vans, you, the first thought is just, can I park anywhere? And then I can walk around and look to find where to go. But so I found this place to park. Everyone was sort of nice looking at me like I wasn't that all that unusual. There was a couple RVs around. And... Um, then I saw that a lot of these like backpackers were coming down the hill from where I parked. So I walked up there and there's this massive ranger station with an educational center kind of thing. I don't know why they couldn't have been more clear about this on the web. You actually uh, couldn't have missed it, right? Like, like this is clearly where the trail ends. There's even a little, you know, monument to the peace trail. Um, by this point, I had been told, you know, that Jess got hypothermia. Jess is going to... Austria. So I knew this stuff was going on. The kid, uh, Lucy, my daughter turned on the location services on her phone so I could track where she was coming. I was texting, um, you know, trying to keep my concern in check and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I eventually, once I could tell exactly where they were coming, I was like, I wouldn't say I hiked. I walked up a trail a ways to go meet Sharon and the kids on their way down. And they were cheery, singing sound of music stuff and all that kind of stuff. And once they knew that my wife was fine, you know, and on her way to the hospital, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of like 
real big anxiety or anything. But it was quite an adventure. And then, of course, because they're stuck in Austria, they're really bummed because apparently a second helicopter from Italy was too slow. And if the helicopter came from Italy, it would have been a lot more convenient. But the Austrians got her. And so I had to wake up at like five in the morning, which is not hard for me, particularly here, um, and drive back <laughs> to Austria, pick up my wife and brother-in-law and drive them back over the Alps on that same road, which was much easier when the weather was nice. So it wasn't that big a deal. But like, that's a lot of going over the Alps in a giant van in a 24 hour period. So that was the, that was the big adventure. Um, lots of other sort of little bits to it. Um, I got to say, look, I just talking about Austria for a second, switching gears. Um, I've always been sort of a fan of Switzerland and a bit of a critic of Austria. And most of this, like for like a lot of Americans, a lot of our opinions about countries in Europe is overly invested in World War II stuff. Um, or which is, I, for some people, it's not overly, it's just disproportionately or heavily, right? I mean, overly is a, as uh, editorializing word. And for me, you know, my, my problem with Austria always was in part the, the Nazi cause, right? They threw parades at the Anschluss when the Nazis came in. This was not, they were not, a, not invaded um, by Hitler. They were, although they might've been earlier. Um, this is one of these weird historical um, footnotes that people forget is that the first time European, the first time a European country sent troops into harm's way to prevent Nazi aggression was when Mussolini sent troops to the border with Austria to prevent a, an earlier Nazi takeover. Uh, you know, when Dolphus, I think it was his name, was the president of Austria. Anyway, and after the Cold War, I mean, once the Cold War started um, for understandable geopolitical, geostrategic reasons, Austria got named the first victim of Nazism, which I just think is just criminally um, propagandistic. Uh, you know, a lot of the very worst Nazis were, in fact, from Austria, starting with Hitler himself. There is something, and you see this phenomenon in a lot of different parts of life, particularly in sort of politics stuff, is that the, it's sort of like, you know, the, the, the expression about how, you know, the, the, the passion of the convert, there's, you know, when you, when you convert to a new faith, you have to prove that you're all in and you can't bend the rules or break the rules. And you tend to sort of scold people who don't take the rules as seriously as you do. I mean, this is just, I mean, it's a common story, right? There's, it's similar to that where um, a lot of the, Austrians felt like they had to prove they were even more German than the Germans. You know, they became sort of super fans. And, um, you know, and anyway, they had parades and stuff when the, when the, during the, for the Anschluss. And meanwhile, Switzerland, you know, has gotten all this grief for staying neutral during World War II. And I, look, I certainly understand grief for, for neutrality in a, in World War II, you know, you like, problematic. At the same time, Switzerland's armed neutrality, which is the technical term for it, was super inconvenient <laughs> to the Italians and to the Germans in World War II. 
And, you know, there was cooperation between the United States and Switzerland and having a safe haven that people could get to um, in Switzerland was of value. But the simple point is, is like um, refusing to comply with Nazism strikes me as morally superior than enthusiastically enlisting in Nazism. And I just remember when I sort of first started writing politically and stuff um, a lot, there was, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was this, you know, understandable and totally legitimate scandal about Nazi gold, about how the Swiss were, you know, had, had hidden assets from Nazis. And, you know, we can condemn that and we should condemn that and all that. But it just, it's one of these things where, you know, the Austrians really kind of escaped a lot of the soul searching and criticism that they they should have gone through, that the Germans have gone through, and have always sort of had a grudging beef about it. That said, every single Austrian I've met on this trip or any other time I've been to Austria that I can remember has always been a great, decent, really friendly person. Uh, my One of my best friends in college was uh, Austrian, and you know I have no animosity towards the Austrian people. Anyway, I got to say... Austria is arguably the prettiest country in Europe. I mean, I, I, I really don't like saying that because I really love Switzerland and Switzerland has a lot in common with Austria. And this trip has made me want to go back to Switzerland just to sort of do a compare and contrast. But I've done a lot of driving. You know, we started out in Munich. We drove a lot in Austria. I drove a lot in Austria. I've seen a lot of small towns and that kind of thing. I haven't been to Vienna on this trip, but I've been to Vienna before. Unlike almost any other place in the world, even like rural, I think poor places are so unbelievably neat and tidy and well taken care of. It's just, it's remarkable. Um, you know, I mean, I get fancy areas and all that kind of stuff, you know, but like everywhere you go, it is just well maintained and pretty as in the the natural surroundings because of the alps are just amazing and uh it's just pound for pound the one of the prettiest places in the world and i'm including places like the kenai peninsula and alaska and prince william sound which i will say prince william sound is i think the geographically the prettiest place i've ever been but it's just it's just super super impressive and then we went to lake como where we had a very wide variety of climatological um, considerations, but we don't need to do more of that. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant.
Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof from grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life. Every mom loves an aura frame named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So anyway, I'm in London now. Yesterday, I had a great, great day. Um, in part because, well, hiking is not really my bag, baby. Um, I love urban walking, um, in busy cities. I can walk for hours and hours and hours in New York. Um, not in LA, you know, it needs to be a busy city, but like New York, London, Rome, those kinds of places. I just love walking if the weather is remotely compliant and, Yesterday, I had arranged uh, to have lunch with um, Francis Dernley and the other guys from the Telegraph's Ukraine podcast, which I'm always boasting about on or promoting on here. And it was just great. And I walked my hotel by London Bridge all the way over to St. James to go to this club and all this history stuff and lots of sort of just media and British politics um, gossiping and jawboning and some day drinking and it was really just a they were incredibly gracious host and i walked i think a total of six and a half seven miles through london yesterday not counting going back out last night and uh it was just great and if you are not a listener of the ukraine podcast and you're interested in what's going on in ukraine in a, and getting a sort of granular daily update uh, i can't recommend it more Highly, and um, if you're already a fan, and I know many listeners on here are, I've been trying to uh, convince them that they should do some sort of uh, event with me at AI, but it sounds like they're going to do it someplace else for totally understandable reasons. But I'm helping them meet some people and introducing them to some people, and I will be getting you know one or more of them on the remnant at some point as well. I guess we should talk a little bit about American politics stuff. I'm a I, has to be with the proviso that I have not been as granularly plugged into events as I might normally be. Um, uh, but I just listened to the first half of Andy McCarthy's um, podcast, um, you know, the McCarthy report explaining what happened with this plea deal thing with, with Hunter Biden. 
I'd be very interested to know what Sarah and David make of it, either make of what Andy's take on it is or just in general and what the what their take is on the the debacle that this thing was on the merits or that seems to be. Um, you know, it's funny because I've been following this thing about the Ways and Means Committee pressuring the court to like bury some document, pull some document and all this kind of stuff. And I assume that that's what the, so the next couple of days is the plea agreement thing unraveled. I thought it had something to do with that. And it turns out it's like kind of a different story. It is a different story. So I did some quick looking around. I mean, basically the gist of it, it sounds like, and Andy makes a very persuasive case, that this was a pretty shady effort to basically prevent Hunter from being prosecuted for anything bad that he may have done in like the last five years or something like that. It's just sort of a get out of jail free kind of thing. And um, the judge had questions about it. And, and when Hunter Biden sort of explained, here's what I thought, I, was, I thought I was getting immunity for everything. Uh, the prosecutors couldn't say, oh, yeah, that's true, because we've been hearing on an almost daily basis that there's still an ongoing investigation of Hunter Biden. And you can't say that you've got sweeping blanket immunity for everything that you may have done in the last five years if there's still an open investigation. And so it became a political crisis. At least that's the case that Andy makes. I recommend listening to it. Um, and... Uh, I have no reason to think that Andy's wrong on the on the major points there, you know, fine-tuning of how the law works and all that. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed this, but I, I've noticed from time to time that lawyers disagree about that kind of stuff. But man, it looks it looks bad to me. And um, um and I think that, you know, I think that this stuff, the 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 sort of MSNBC kind of New York Times crowd is getting itself in trouble again by uh, wagon circling so much and, and doing the, you know, it's this approach of let us respond to worrisome allegations that would freak you out if the partisan labels were reversed um, with sort of sneering condescension and, um, oh, it can't be a serious thing to be concerned about because Republicans are concerned about it and they're never concerned about legitimate things. I just think that's a, just a deeply poisonous and counterproductive way to talk about any of this stuff. So anyway, I uh, just figured I'd talk about that. I mentioned that. On um, the other stuff that I've, I've you know, followed a little bit, um, um, in part because it started when I left, this, this country, I don't even talk about this country music thing. Uh, you know, this life in a small town thing. I think it's on the one hand, perfectly fine to criticize this Aldine guy. Um, I think it is stupid to get crazy worked up about it. Um, it does, it doesn't merit the hysteria. Um, I think that it's, um, it's weird when one of these cultural products becomes this thing and becomes this, uh, you know, outrage du jour kind of stuff 
when other cultural politics project or products which are more profane, more troubling, more indefensible, don't? Why the last thirty years of various you know gangster rap, hip hop stuff that talk about the most hideous treatment of women and all these guys? Why this just is sort of a verboten topic that you can invite charges of racism, but this boobish country song about life in a small town becomes this issue of great concern. It's, it, it just does feel like, um, culture war politics, you know, um, by proxy, everybody who gets worked up about this crap benefits from it. Um, I thought Catherine Lopez's piece was one of the few pieces that took the right tone and the right hot and took the high road on the whole thing, which is like, you shouldn't be writing songs that bragging about beating people up, you know? And, you know, maybe that's, um, that's all that sort of needs to be said. You know, I, I think that there's this, you know, I, you know, I've been in Germany and Austria, you know, this Gemundlichkeit idea about small towns in America. I like small towns in America in theory. You know, I never lived in one. I doubt I ever will. I get the appeal and the sort of romantic Hollywood version of small towns. Um, but this idea that small towns are um, where real America is, I think, usually goes way too far. Most of the great, most of the accomplishments of this country that people brag about, talk about, read about, and study are not small town accomplishments. That's not degrading small town life. It's just to say that, like, a lot of great things come out of cities and more densely populated places in this country, including most Americans. And this idea that like, you know, real America are these little places with very few people living in them. I get it as a sort of aspirational sort of romantic thing, but it's worth, you know, I was talking about this with my daughter. It's like, when you go to a foreign country, where do you visit? You visit the cities. Like if you want to go to Italy, and you only have one shot, you know, one trip to Italy in your budget for a very long time, you go to Rome or Florence or Milan or Venice or all of the above, right? Um, those are the centers of Italian civilization. If you go to England and you've never been before, where do you want to go? Well, I mean, you might want to go to a bunch of places. You might want to go to the Cotswolds, you might want to go wherever, but you go to London. And when people visit America to see what America is like, you know, I find it kind of horrifying that there's a big percentage of them who go to Vegas um, because I don't think Vegas, you know, Vegas isn't America in the sense that it's not even urban America. It's just Vegas. It's this weird kind of gross place. I mean, I enjoy going there with friends sometimes and I like gambling and whatnot. But I think anybody who spent any time in Vegas agrees with me to one extent or another that if you've only been to Vegas and then you go home and say, yeah, I've, I've been to America. I know what America is about. You're, you don't. But people go to L.A., they go to New York, they go to Chicago, right? They go to Atlanta, they go to Dallas. It'd be good if they could go to some of the other, you know, you know, less traveled places and all that kind of stuff. But that's America to a lot of people. I just find the, the cultural and political imperative to talk about small town rural America as if it's the only real America is politically really dumb because as of just a fact of math, most voters don't live there, but it's also, it's kind of creepy, dishonest in the sense that you are, you are appealing to something that speaks to 
sort of the romantic side of our political and ideological natures. Again, I'm not saying that liking small town America or country music or any of that kind of stuff is fascist. I'm just making a, a point. You know, there's a reason why fascism in Europe emerges so powerfully in Italy and Germany. And I mean, there are lots of reasons, but one of the primary one is that ones is that these were basically the last two countries in Europe to unify um, into the nation states that we know today. I mean, Italy remained this sort of quilt patchwork of principalities and nation states into, you know, until fairly late. So did Germany. You know, I think it was in the seven, in 1700, quote unquote, Germany was probably, I don't know, 40 different little mini states and nation states and some big ones, you know, like Prussia. And by the, you know, late 19th century, it was essentially a handful or one, uh, you know, and part of that we have to blame Napoleon for, um, for arousing German nationalism the way he did. But that's a conversation for another day. Um, and they were also among the last to um, urbanize and industrialize at scale. And, um, and this is one of the reasons why the politics in the United States in the 1930s were so poisonous as well. And obviously the Great Depression and other things factored into it as well. But you have millions of people leaving settled traditional communities and moving to big cities, big metropolitan areas where they felt deracinated, uh, alienated. Um, they got really nostalgic for sometimes an imagined past rather than the actual past. And this, this sort of fantasizing about what real authentic life is like, you know, close to the soil, small population, small towns where everybody sort of fits inside Dunbar's number. Um, that sort of talk appeals to a lot of urban people and comes with it with a certain kind of politics that I think can lead people astray. And I'm not saying that it's all fascist or anything, but like the nationalism, you know, nationalism and fascism, the distinctions are... Um, important, right? All fascists are nationalists, but not all nationalists are fascists. But this us versus themism, this hatred of, you know, this anti-intellectualism, the uh, anti-cosmopolitanism, you know, now called anti-globalism, this idea of this made-up life, small-town life, having more moral and, and political authority and legitimacy can steer people in really ugly directions. At the same time, I, you know, I like a lot of the schmaltz. And, I, you know, and I think, you know, I think the song is fine. I mean, I, I don't, I disagree with it. I don't really like it. I just don't think it's a particular threat. And I think that, you know, criticizing it on the terms I'm criticizing it is, is fine and forced to do so. But, like, at the same time, all of this stuff is, like, wildly overdone and, and pretextual in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, one last thing on that, just now I'm thinking about it. You'd think more people who are crazy pro-MAGA, pro-Trump, would realize the extent to which Donald Trump is doing shtick for them when he's a guy born and raised in Queens who became a Manhattan real estate mogul, eventually a billionaire reality star who knows nothing about Christianity and knows nothing about small-town small life, 
that when he's associating himself with that kind of stuff, um, you'd think more people would be aware that at minimum, you know, you don't have to call it grifting, but it's certainly marketing. Um, and, uh, um, and that's sort of what I'm getting at is, you know, the, you know, all these Fox News um, populists working on Sixth Avenue. I'm sorry, Seventh Avenue talking about, you know, what small town real Americans they are um, when they live in apartments in Manhattan or in the Jersey or Long Island suburbs. It's a marketing thing. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So this DeSantis stuff, um, what is there to say about it? I, I kind of think the wheels are coming off. You know, we, are, I, we were just talking about Nazis and um, fascists and all that. Uh, I should say something about this Nate Hockman stuff, which we're at most part of the dispatch, I think, ignoring because I don't, I think it's funny how, like, I don't, for those of you, okay, so what happened was uh, Nate Hockman, who had interned at the dispatch, then became a National Review writer. Um, we did a piece at uh, the dispatch by Alec Dent, who's no longer at the dispatch. He's now at the Messenger. Um, but we did a piece about this weird club that a lot of these new right kids in Washington belong to or go to and have debates and whatnot. And then in the course of everything, we learned that Nate had done this, you know, uh, Twitter spaces audio thing with Nick Fuentes, the neo-Nazi uh, piece of garbage, and was inappropriately and indefensibly deferential and complimentary of him. You know, Nate's explanation, which I credited to some extent at the time, was that he was um, just trying to get Fuentes to open up and all these kinds of things and, and be more conversational, which I credit him just that I think that's part of the explanation. I don't think it was really an excuse. And anyway, the whole thing blew up. We got attacked by a lot of people. My friend Michael Brennan Doherty was very, very angry at us. This Matthew Peterson guy, someone sent me. Uh, this tweet storm by this guy, I think his name is Matthew Peterson. Apparently he's the, is or was the executive editor of The Blaze. As you can tell, he doesn't have a huge radar presence for me. Uh, went on this terror about how the only reason the dispatch would do this is because Nate Hockman is so much more relevant than, I mean, he's a 22-year-old kid at the time, 23-year-old kid. 
um, so much more relevant than all, you know, me and David French and Steve Hayes and Sarah Isger and, and blah, 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 blah. And that he's, uh, you know, he's the future and we're the past and we don't matter. And he's declaring war on us and blah, 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 blah. And this is outrageous and yada, yada, yada. And it's all, it was all nonsense. We stood by the piece. Anyway, it, this all comes back to me now because, um, Nate did these videos or he helped do these videos or he disseminated these videos because he went, he left National Review to go work for the DeSantis campaign. One of these videos had this uh, Nazi uh, symbolism of the Sonoran and it shows DeSantis in front of, you know, sort of looking like a leader who's a military leader who's going to bring the order and discipline and, 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 and Gemeinschaft of Florida to the nation. Um, this came out on the heels of that idiotic anti-LBGTQ video. And Nate has been telling people, apparently, I saw Roger Ayer saying this, that he had no idea that this, this Sonoran thing, I think that's how you pronounce it, was a Nazi image. Now, my views on that are pretty, let me put it this way. I'm skeptical that he's telling the truth there, but I'm willing to entertain the idea that he's telling the truth there. I just don't really understand how that is a great excuse. Kind of reminds me, I was talking about this with some friends over text and Slack and stuff. A lot of you probably don't remember this, but there was this writer for the New Republic back in the day, Ruth Shalit, who was like the hot thing, up and coming, you know, the next Marine Dowd, blah, 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 blah. And she got caught plagiarizing. And it was like two examples, three examples. She ripped off David Broder. And I, I remember at the time, everyone joking, like, who rips off David Broder? Which is to say that David Broder was a decent and honorable guy, but not a scintillating prose stylist. And not someone you should plagiarize, in part because he was so widely read in Washington that someone was going to notice. Anyway, I, I haven't gone back and visited all the details. So if I'm misremembering something, I apologize. She got busted. She apologized. She got reprimanded or put on leave or something from the New Republic and blah, 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 blah. And then she did it again, and then she did it again, and then she did it again. And each time she claimed it was a mistake and, you know, getting used to how do you cut and paste and all this kind of stuff. On the one hand, I, found, I, I always found it so hard to believe that she was lying because what does she benefit from plagiarizing? I mean, like, and getting caught or whatever. But at the same time, it doesn't matter if it's an accident, right? I mean, like, if you get busted for plagiarism, even if it's by accident, and I do believe it can happen by accident, you know, I mean, I have enough wayward cut and paste sentences here and there after writing three books and five million words of columns and blog posts and whatnot. Um, I live in mild terror of, you know, making those kinds of mistakes, but I can totally see how it happened. And I, I don't think it should be the um, death sentence that some people often conveniently um, claim, um, but it's bad, right? The thing is, if you got caught for it and really embarrassed for it once, you should try really, really hard not to have it happen again. And to have it happen several times to the point where truly your career is being, you know, destroyed, then there's just no excuse, right? I mean, and similarly, if I got caught sort of foolishly playing footsie with a neo-Nazi and hanging out with a crowd of... Um, of these, like a lot of these weird Claremont fellow guys who are all sort of 
Fuentes adjacent and, you know, and the Pedro and Gonzalez guy. If, if I were acquiring the stink of being um, sort of soft on bigots and neo-Nazis, even if it was unfair, I'd be like super careful not to fuel that narrative any further. And, um, and then you add in the fact that Nate was working for a presidential campaign that basically was this you know, lifeline for him in some ways. And he goes and just doesn't check to see where this image comes from. Um, I mean, this is his claim, apparently. It's such gross negligence that I, you know, I don't, again, I'm not sure I believe him. Um, but even if I do believe him, I don't understand why that would be. Um, it just shows that you are so unconcerned or so cavalier with these sorts of topics that you don't think it's worth going a little further to make sure that you don't do something like this. I think that kind of indifference as a defense is pretty damning too, but who cares? It, it just doesn't matter that much. I, I wish Hockman the best. I think he has been making some really poor choices for a while now. Um, they are consistent with a long history of people on the right thinking that they are the ones who can sort of thread this needle and talk about these taboo things in ways that will only redound to their benefit, you know, they, you know, like carry the brazier, the, 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 what do you call it? The, you know, the, the lantern of the forbidden flame and they carry it on their head and they say, see, I can do this. And then 10 minutes later, they, you know, they're self-immolating themselves with it. Um, and I, he's so young and he's talented and smart. I hope he figures out how to sort of pull out of all this stuff. I think that, the rallying around the kid is weird and tells you something interesting about various things on the right. But anyway, I think the real relevance of this, and I'm sorry I went on so long about that. I haven't talked about this kind of stuff in a while. The real relevance is uh, about the DeSantis campaign. I mean, of course, they, they let Nate go. They were letting other people go because the DeSantis campaign has got this massive burn rate and has a lot of overhead. They're doing, I mean, I haven't studied the latest polls. I saw he's down in New Hampshire. Um, he's down in South Carolina. Um, uh, our own Nick Cotogio had this piece before I left about how he was, um, depending on the polling you're looking at, you know, slightly down, uh, like three points down from when he entered the race. And you got to remember, if you go back to back then, everyone, when DeSantis was sort of moldering a bit in the polls before he got in the race, the DeSantis people rightly and fairly said, you know, look, he's not even a declared candidate yet. Wait for him to get in the race. Then you see what happens. Well, he got in the race. We've seen what happens. It hasn't been too impressive. I increasingly think that, you know, there's almost no chance he gets the nomination. Like, I, I, I don't know. I'm no longer confident that and I'm also no longer confident that he could beat Biden in the way that I, I, I once was. I still think he probably could. It's been a bad campaign. And I think it's been a bad campaign because they're bought into a weird theory. And DeSantis is not enough of a normal politician to read the room. I mean, remember all that stuff about how people said DeSantis can't read the room. He's got, I, mean, I, I was one of the ones saying it because people who, who had interacted a lot with DeSantis said it to me that, you know, there was this, like, is he on the spectrum? And he has very low EQ and he's not a glad hander. 
And I was very sympathetic to sort of the the Charlie Cook defense at the time about that, which is I'm not sure that some of these things that he doesn't like to hang out with donors, he'd rather be home with his family. I'm not sure that's as damning as people think it is, right? That he's not comfortable schmoozing people at cocktail parties. You know, I mean, I get that. And I think a lot of Americans could get that. And it's certainly not a moral failing. It might be a political failing, right? Just in terms of what you need to do the job. But I'm starting to think that like, to the extent that stuff is true, it helps explain that DeSantis gets a theory about what he needs to do to win. And he executes, right? It's like, decide, commit, execute, right? Or whatever those management types talk about. Or decide, commit, execute, succeed. The, which would make sense for a guy who was a you know a military guy and a law, lawyer and all that kind of stuff. The problem is, is that their theory of the race just looks wrong. Um, you know, they think that the the voters that he needs to rally first are the most committed pro-Trump voters, and then he can scoop up everybody else afterwards. I could see why, if you're looking at this stuff on paper a year ago, that would make some sense. I mean, obviously, Trump had the biggest hold over the most voters, and you need those voters. And, you know, you secure that the quote-unquote Trump base, and then you can move outward to collect other voters. The problem with that theory is that I think it would be the absolute correct theory if Trump weren't in the race, but he's in the race. So you're not really stealing the core Trump voters because the core Trump voters, by definition, are going with Trump. And meanwhile, the theory about what he needed to do to do that was predicated on on this very online, we will win the battle through memes kind of thinking. And it was, you know, I think DeSantis has been made a smart decision to recalibrate his strategy about not doing mainstream media interviews. That was a this idea that you're only going to win by doing fever swampy or friendly media interviews when we live in an age where being attacked by the mainstream media is like the best thing that can happen to um, a Republican politician just seemed really, really a weird choice. And so I think it's smart for them to change it. I just think it may be too late. And then you look at like the specifics of this stuff. I mean, he, he talks about the fringy, what I think is mostly jackass wing of the, of the sort of MAGA base as if they are the one voters he really just can't cross. And this thing about the RFK, you know, he didn't say that he was going to put RFK on the, as the head of the FDA or the CDC, but as, as Nick points out, it's like, it's not at all clear what else he could have meant when he said he would take, he would use, he was, you know, he was asked by that Clay Travis guy, would you make him your running mate? And he said, no. And I thought his answer on that was pretty good. But then he, you know, goes on to say, now I'm pretty good on COVID. You know, I might use him to sick him on the FDA or the CDC and, you know, what does sick him on those agencies mean if not running them? Does it mean he's like some sort of inspector Javert who gets to go over the health establishment and public health establishment and the federal government? I don't know that there's any defense of the actual substance of what DeSantis was saying there because Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a demented, lying crackpot, bizarre effort to just take him at his word when he just makes stuff up or is so bad at reading scientific studies 
that his misinterpretations, he doesn't check with any serious person um, and just puts out there, you know, Ashkenazi Jews, you know, COVID was designed to not infect Ashkenazi Jews. I don't think he's an anti-Semite. I think he's an idiot. I mean, I think he's a profound idiot. And I don't get what people see in the guy. Anyway, DeSantis's desire or perceived need to play footsie with RFK fans um, is just another example of him thinking the most important voters are the voters most likely, the things you have to do to win over those voters are the things you would do to most turn off swing voters. Um, and also a lot of just normie Republicans. And I don't get the strategy anymore. Um, surely if this isn't the real him, and some DeSantis defenders say that, look, this isn't the real him. They got caught up in this very online thing. That's why they hired people like Nate. That's why they had these weird strategies. That's why the whole Disney thing and where woke goes to die stuff got so emphasized. Um, but he's actually really a wonky guy. And, you know, he's, you know, Jeb Bush likes him and he's more mainstream, but this is what you have to do in a party controlled by, you know, Trumpian populists, blah, blah, blah. I get that defense and it's still plausible, but it's increasingly implausible because you, and the only explanation other than the fact that, you know, either he really believes that RFK would be someone good to appoint the CDC or the FDA, or he's such a bad politician at this level that he can't figure out where to draw these lines and he just panders to these people. And um, if it's the latter, then I just don't see how he gets the nomination, never mind wins, right? I mean, it, he, it, there's people, people who said to me back in the day, oh, he, you know, when I was talking about how I, you know, I hear he can't read the room and he can't do small talk and he's bad in, a, in, a, you know, in people's living rooms, people were like, man, that doesn't matter as much as it used to. And they gave me all sorts of plausible arguments. And they made the case that it really didn't, you know, it didn't affect his huge win in Florida and it doesn't affect the grander strategy. And I think it kind of does, inf you know, manifest itself in the grander strategy because it makes it difficult for him sell himself ideologically as a mainstream guy. And I, look, I get it. I have friends. I'm sympathetic myself from time to time to people who are still angry about the COVID stuff. But that is just a shrinking part of the overall electorate. The people who are still voting on what happened under COVID, I kind of doubt that it's that significant a group inside the GOP primary electorate. It's definitely not um, the mainstream, you know, front of mind issue um, with the average voter or even the average Republican voter that it was a year ago or two years ago for the kind of obvious reason that the pandemic is over and also that people don't want to talk about that stuff anymore. They're just burnt out on it. And the strategy of being the guy who was good on COVID, I just think has hit crazy diminishing returns already. And, and DeSantis isn't a good enough organic politician to pick up on that. So, but I may be wrong. He may turn things around. It doesn't feel like it. Oh, and I guess, you know, that's the other thing is like this, I'd say pretty grotesque and demagogic democratic attack on 
the Florida education stuff, um, specifically this idea that slaves, you know, there's a sentence or a fraction of a sentence in this very broad and deep set of guidelines that says slavery was bad, says slavery was evil, that the conditions for slaves were evil and terrible and, you know, all the stuff that you should say because it's true and it's morally important to repeat it. All that stuff is in there, but there is a sentence or a part of a sentence that says some slaves acquired skills um, that benefited them after slavery was over or something to that effect. And I just think that's so incandescently obviously true and sort of settled. And the idea that somehow, you know, what Kamala Harris says is that Florida is telling kids that the slavery was good for slaves is really insidious and pernicious and gross. It's not what they're saying. You know, what, there's, what, what the thing says is that, you know, some human beings, and sla- you know, American slaves were human beings, took what benefits or what, you know, learned from experiences to try to better their lives because they have human agency and free will. What's so weird about this is, like, we've been taught for so long that treating, you know, like I, I've mentioned this a bunch of times on here, you know, it's like my daughter spent, like, all of 10th grade or 11th grade um, in these fights about how, you know, Apparently, To Kill a Mockingbird is problematic now because Atticus Finch is a white savior and and white saviors deny black people the agency that they have as autonomous human beings, blah, 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 blah. I get those arguments. At the same time, and this is my daughter's point, white people are told to be good allies of black people, of oppressed people, people who are being discriminated against. And what is Atticus Finch if not a white ally, right? So it's, anyway... But the point is, is like, I think this point about treating all slaves as this, or all black people, or all Jews, or all anybody, as these undifferentiated blobs and categories, and they're all interchangeable, like Lego pieces of the same size. You know, this is part of my critique about identity politics. This argument that you're saying that all slaves were lucky to be slaves because a few of them learned how to be blacksmiths or something like that, is a step in the opposite direction back towards saying that slaves have no agency and they were all just an undifferentiated blob of, of labor, of, of, of illicit labor, right? Um, you know, it's a very Marxian kind of analysis of things. And I don't for a moment believe that anybody who's actually looked at the full stuff believes this stuff. It is purely a political play to um, demonize DeSantis, to arouse, to, 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 to start the difficult process of ginning up the African-American vote for the Biden ticket, um, to get the media on side, and to do fan service for the most committed parts of the Democratic Party to paint all the opponents as, as racist and evil and all that kind of stuff. And I think DeSantis could have very easily dealt with this controversy. You know, I think one of the most effective things Barack Obama did, I can't remember what the actual scandal was. Maybe it was something about agricultural exports or no, it was the, it was the inflating tires stuff where Obama had something said something like, you know, if people just properly inflated their tires, we would save, you know, X hundred million gallons of gasoline a year or something like that. And I get, I know, I think there are legitimate criticisms to be made of the point at the time and all that kind of stuff, but Republicans kind of went batty over it. I think that was at the moment. It might've been something else. 
And Obama just had this great response where he said, it's, it's like they're trying to be stupid or something to that effect. It's like they want to sound stupid, right? They, and he took this tone of, of we don't have to play these stupid games. Everyone of any intelligence knows what I'm talking about. And, you know, let's move on. DeSantis could have done that. He's done that before when he's done the stuff about, you know, um, some of the transgender stuff, some of the COVID stuff. He's just gone to the facts. And instead on this, it, from what I can tell, and again, I'm only getting snapshots, um, he just got caught completely flat-footed about how to respond to this. He was like, well, I wasn't on the committee that came up with these guidelines, which is true and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, and shame on some of his Republican opponents and others for doing the pile-on thing. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't think Tim Scott's criticism was valid or the best version of Tim Scott. Uh, the Byron Donalds thing, I think, is just raw politics, um, pro-Trump politics. But if you telegraph to the world that you're going to have a ham-fisted response that's going to get you into trouble um, on something like this, you should expect that your political opponents, not just in the Democratic Party, but in the Republican primary, are going to make hay of it. And, um, and so I think, you know, again, I think the criticisms are bogus, but DeSantis's handling of it has been really, really bad. And again, it goes to this larger point about my larger point about how I just don't think he's got the, you know, the, the, you know, the thing that Reagan had, um, you know, Reagan, people forget that Reagan was actually, you know, there's this, 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 this beatification, the sanctification of Reagan on the right, which, you know, has taken a lot of hits in the last five, six, seven years. Um, but it's still a big part of the right. And, you know, you hear it when you hear Mike Pence talk, you know, um, and I'd much prefer the party that, that glorified Ronald Reagan than the party that glorifies Donald Trump. Don't get me wrong. Um, but the, the, Part of the problem with the sort of hagiography of Donald Trump, I mean, the hagiography of, of, of Ronald Reagan, you know, over my lifetime has been it often sort of left out the fact that Reagan was just a really good politician. Um, and I don't mean that as a criticism. He just is really good at reading a room, which is kind of weird because he was kind of an, a diffident, um, closed up guy personally. He didn't have a lot of close friends. But he knew how to read a room. I mean, this is the thing that I think is most, I've talked about this before, but there's most missing on the right these days. Almost all of the stuff that makes you think that Reagan was this outrageous, partisan, extremist stuff really isn't the result of anything Reagan said. Now, obviously, left-wingers are going to say it was the result of things Reagan did, right? And all that kind of stuff. And, you know, something, welfare queen stuff. You can come up with specific examples that you can say, oh, that was extreme speech and all that kind of stuff. You know, when you go back and you actually look at the historical record, and Steve Hayward's great on this in his book, books, I should say, Reagan very rarely even said the words Republican and Democrat. I mean, I'm sure he did, you know, in gridiron speeches and jokes and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I know he did. But for the most part on the hustings, he talked about Americans. And, you know, part of this was a result that he was kind of a New Deal Democrat for a long time. 
part of the result was that the Democratic Party outnumbered the Republican Party most of his life. And so if you talk about Republicans and how you're a Republican, you're going to turn off a majority of voters. You know, Reagan needed those Reagan Democrats. But that was good, right? That made Reagan a better politician for selling conservative ideas. And what he did was he told stories. He told stories that people, regardless of their ideological or partisan profile, could appreciate, relate to, and um, be sympathetic with. And the Republican Party today and the Democratic Party, it's so much less about telling stories and more about haranguing people about how we are pure and they are evil. And, um, and that's the sort of, I mean, people, people think I'm too nostalgic for Reagan. I believe in zombie Reaganism and all that kind of stuff. Well, some of that is, I actually still believe in the principles I've always believed in, free trade, free markets, limited government, strong defense, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not the one who's changed. Um, but part of my nostalgia for Ronald Reagan is that he was one of the last serious big time Republican politicians who thought it was really impor important to persuade people to to, to persuade people that he was right, to win people over to his cause. And, um, and I don't mean win over other Republicans. I mean win people over from the other party, from independents and that kind of stuff. His, his politics was Aristotelian in the sense that it was about coalitions. Bring people in. If you agree with me on seven out of ten things, you're not my 30% enemy, you're my 70% friend. So much of Republican stuff now is if you disagree with us on anything, you're the enemy, unless you're Robert F. Kennedy Jr., in which case the fact that you are a left-wing, Chomskyite, deceitful, anti-American piece of garbage, but you're also anti-vax, that makes you awesome. Uh, somehow that's a different thing, but we don't need to get into all that. All right, I apologize if I have been too meandering. Um, um, I'm glad that people liked the conversations I had this week with um, Russell Moore and um, uh, and Professor Farhani. I, just, I have struggled with her name. Um, I thought they were great, um, and um, and I'm looking forward to get back getting back stateside. Um, thank you for your indulgence and in all of this. I hope the audio is okay. Um, I hope I wasn't too out of practice. Um, Oh, and I should, I should, you know, I should let you guys know we've launched a new product at the dispatch. Um, it's called the collision. I think it's a great idea. Um, you know, advisory opinions is awesome. Sarah Isger is awesome. Um, uh, David French is surprisingly good considering that he's dead to me. Um, but the Trump indictment stuff and all these things coming down the pike are so fraught with both politics and law that we thought it would be good to at least have um, maybe temporary, maybe permanent, we'll see how everything goes, a new product that deals with this stuff. So I'll just read you from the notice that we sent out. Um, I'm not going to read you the whole thing. Uh, to dispatch uh, members. Dear dispatch member, we are very pleased to announce the launch of The Collision a newsletter from the dispatch dedicated to covering the truly unprecedented intersection of law and politics at the center of the 2024 presidential election. 
Former President Donald Trump, the leading Republican candidate, finds himself mired in numerous legal entanglements, the most serious being his recent indictment by a federal grand jury related to his retention of classified material and a potential forthcoming indictment connected to his actions surrounding the 2020 presidential election in January 6. No major party presidential candidate has faced so much legal jeopardy. No political party has been presented with such a decision about nominating a legally compromised candidate. No incumbent president has ever seen his administration prosecute his chief opponent. So Mike Warren, who's awesome, uh, incredibly well-sourced and perceptive political reporter, uh, and Sarah Isger are going to do this newsletter together. The plan and the expectation is it for it to be pretty much must-reading, you know, required reading as this stuff starts to heat up. And uh, it's just the latest of many, many, many reasons why you should become a fully paid subscriber and member of the Dispatch community. Other than that, I'll talk to you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.